Welcome to the Semper Reformato Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. And we're going to turn to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, to the passage that we read, the entire chapter. I know it was a long reading, but we're going to try and summarize it for you today and to pick some very practical points out for to help you in the age in which we live. And it was a difficult age for Daniel. Jerusalem had fallen. Around 605 BC, a king called Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had brought the city of Jerusalem to its knees and ransacked it and destroyed the temple and had taken all the contents of that sacred building back to his own city and placed them in the temple of his false gods. And for Nebuchadnezzar, the implication of that was obvious. Our God is more powerful than your God. Our God in our temple here in Babylon is far more powerful than the God you worship in Jerusalem, for your God has been defeated. Of course, the Bible completely refutes that idea if you turn back to Daniel chapter 1 and verse 2. You'll see right away who was responsible for Nebuchadnezzar's victory. For it says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. It was God's doing, and God did it for a reason. And we'll discover that reason a little bit later on this morning. So the people of Israel have been taken into captivity. And it's a sad day, as the psalmist lamented in Psalm 137, where he said, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. Now Nebuchadnezzar was an evil, tyrannical, cruel despot, but he was no fool. Do you remember what had happened whenever the Israelites were previously in captivity? That was in Egypt. Do you remember what Pharaoh did? Pharaoh had made them slaves. He'd made them work long and hard and tedious hours. He'd given them no respite. And eventually they rebelled against him. They turned to God for salvation. And they cried out for release. And they were brought out as a nation of slaves from under his evil reign. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't going to let that happen. He was a politician. And he would use political tactics. He would take the brightest and the best of the youth of each of these captive nations and he would re-educate them. He would remove all traces of their upbringing. He would take away their religious and cultural education and they would be fully assimilated assimilated into the pagan culture and the lifestyle of their captors. Nowadays, we would call it integrated education, wouldn't we? Well, you take a child away from Sunday school and away from their parents. You bring them into school. You teach them to be politically correct. You teach them to be respective of diversity and to be part of what modern culture uh, teaches them to be. That's the way it's done. 
still happens in that way. And so, if Nebuchadnezzar did this, he could control all the diverse national identities and ethnic cultures in his kingdom. After all, if you really want to control your subjects, you get them when you're, they're young. And you bring them into the education system and you give them an education that washes their Christianity out of them, washes their home life and what they're taught by their parents out of them. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. So four young men are selected for this intensive course of training from among the Hebrews. They were the cream of Hebrew society. Look at verse 4. They were children in whom there was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom, and cunning in knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and tongue of the Chaldeans. My commentators differ. Some think these boys were only 14. Some think they were a little bit older than that. But they're in their youth. Keep that in mind. That's very significant. Look at how the course curriculum is planned for them. In verse 4, we're told that they have three years to be taught the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. They're going to learn paganism. They're going to be thoroughly steeped, immersed in the ideas of, their, of the foreign culture that they've been brought into. They're going to be immersed in the philosophy of paganism, immersed in its writings and its books. They're going to learn its language. They're going to have new terms and definitions for everything. You can see where this is going. They're given new names. All of these boys have names that reflect their Hebrew faith and their religion. Names that incorporate Hebrew words for God, like the word El, short for the Hebrew Elohim, the plural word for God. Or Yah, taken from the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh, or Jehovah. And every time their name would be said, it would remind them of their heritage. Daniel, God is my judge. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious. Mishael, who is like the Lord? Azariah, the Lord is my helper. And they're given these new names, but names that reflect the character of pagan gods. So Daniel became Belteshazzar, a servant of Baal. Hananiah became Shadrach, inspired by the sun god. Mishael became Meshach, who is what the moon god is. And Azariah became Abednego, the servant of the pagan deity Nebo. So they're given, they're taken away from their homes, from their parents, from their faith, and they're given three years of intensive study in pagan culture. They're given new names so that they will remember to use the proper personal pronouns. And then they're given a new diet. Verse 5. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, so that in the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now you might think that's a reward. That's something special. The king's food would have been very rich. 
They're going to be fed with the very best of food. The same food that gets served in the royal palace. The same food that's eaten by the king himself. What an enormous privilege. No one outside the king's favoured circle would be able to eat food like this. Other people in the kingdom might starve, but these boys will be well fed. And that's where the challenge lies. That's a critical point in this story. We're going to come back to it in a moment. I just want to pause for a moment for some application. Because I really do believe that times have not changed that much. Certainly human nature hasn't. I think that sometimes our education system, and especially our higher education system, run in this country by the state. I think that our education system is infested with anti-Christian paganism. And some of our universities, if not most of them, are cesspits of postmodern thought. Imagine denial of biological facts. And it seems that one of their purposes in the upper sections of the education system in this country is to wring any vestige of Christian faith out of those who attend. To bring them totally into conformity with our pagan society. Like the University of Babylon that the three uh, the four Hebrew boys attended. They swamp a student in secularism. They do their best to remove any Christian foundations that a student will have learned as a child. They'll have gone to Sunday school. They'll have learned about their sin, about a saviour. They'll have sat at their mother's knee and they'll have learned wee prayers and Bible stories. And when they get into the education system, they will reward them with sensual pleasures and entertainments and alcohol and sexual immorality to try to Watch that Christian heritage out of those young people. And I think it's going to get worse. I think that's what lies ahead for young Christians as they prepare this month to go to higher education for the first time. And I think that they need to know that and they need to be prepared. And I think they will need the courage of Daniel to stand up and say no to some of their professors and their university peers. I think that sometimes they will find that they are standing completely alone and it will be a hard stand. <coughs> but look at verse 8. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. There's an important phrase. Like, wouldn't you think Daniel would be grateful? What on earth is wrong with this petulant teenager? He's caught into a strop over getting fed something he doesn't want, hasn't he? Back in the 1990s, we went on a cruise in the Canberra. And we travelled over there with another family, and they had a daughter, and she was in her very early teenage years. And, you know, the Canberra was a cruise ship that served absolutely beautiful food. It had world-class chefs. It had gourmet meals. And to be honest with you, we got a bit tired and fed up 
with the teenager's attitude. Because every time we sat down in a meal and they would bring the starter and they would bring the soup course and they would bring the fish course and they would bring the main course and they would bring the, the they would bring the sorbet after the main course to refresh your palate before you got your dessert and your dessert would come and then they would bring the cheese course and then the tea and the coffee would come and you would be eating all evening if you let them carry on and this teenager would go into the huff and she wouldn't want any of the good food and no matter how hard the waiters tried to please her nothing would do and eventually one night she blurted out I don't like this food I want to go to McDonald's There's no McDonald's on a cruise ship. Well, at least there wasn't when we were on it. And I think the people who were helping to educate and nourish those Hebrew boys must have been a wee bit more than frustrated with Daniel. The prince of the eunuchs, verse 10, said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall ye make me endanger my head to the king. There was definitely a hint of frustration in that. And it's not as if the food served in the king's restaurant was going to contravene the Hebrew food laws. Wine wasn't forbidden, for example. But still Daniel said no. Now let's be honest, this is not just teenage angst. This is not Daniel just being an awkward young man. There's a very deep principle at stake here. The food served on the king's table was offered to the very idols that the king had said had defeated the God of Israel before it was even put on the plates. Every meal began with a sacrifice to pagan deities. It was idolatry. For God had given us, not just the Jews, but all of mankind, a command, a law, which says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. And that's exactly why Jerusalem had fallen to Nebuchadnezzar in the first place. That's why God gave that city into the hands of its enemies to chastise the people of God for their idolatrous ways, for setting up pagan temples, places where they could worship Baal and Ashtoreth and Moloch, and here in our modern pagan education system, in a month's time, when the students start streaming back in to their classrooms, the first thing they're going to be taught is that you are in charge of your destiny. You are the God of your own life. You must follow your heart. You must be what you want to be. They worship themselves. You are your own God. And the God of the growing human sexual depravity is enthroned. 
Now Daniel's only a young teen, but he knows his history and he knows his God and he knows about the holiness of God and he knows about the justice of God and he knows about the wrath of God and he's not going to make that same mistake. Daniel said no. Even though he was alone, we used to sing a weak chorus, didn't we? Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. Daniel stands up. Look at how he does this, because this is important for us in this modern society. He refuses to cooperate, but in verse 8 we're told, that he does it politely. He simply goes and he requests of the Prince of Eunuch. He doesn't demand. He respects the authority of those who are over him. And he does it prayerfully. We all know that Daniel was a man of prayer. And he must have sought the Lord's help. And that help was provided in verse 9. For it says the Lord had brought Daniel into favour with the Prince of the Eunuchs. So he does it politely, and he does it prayerfully, and he does it persistently. He doesn't stop when he's told it can't happen. You must eat this food. He simply goes to the next level up, and he puts his request to him. He doesn't give up after a refusal. He tries something else, and he does it practically. He's willing to allow his faith to be tested. Verse 12 down to verse 15. He talks about how he's willing to do this for ten days and then to be examined. And at the end of the ten days, if he isn't doing well without the king's food, then he's willing to go back on to it. He's confident that God's way is the right way. He's confident that God's way is the superior way. He asks for food and water, just vegetables. For ten days. And so that's what he gets. Daniel and his three companions eat nothing but salad and water for ten days. Can you imagine what it must have been like in the refectory in the university? Whenever everybody else is getting brought in their steaks and it's being set down before them and Daniel and the eunuch comes in, hands Daniel and his three friends their salads. Can you imagine the, the comments there must have been from the others? But look at the results in verse 15. At the end of ten days, their appearances, their countenances, appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. A while back there, over in America, some People were doing something called the Daniel Plan, weren't they? It was a diet based on on this. And you know, this is not a diet plan, not by any means, because at the end of it, Daniel was fatter. Not many people go on a diet to get fatter, sure there's not. No. It's an act of faithfulness and obedience. Daniel wasn't setting out to lose weight. He was setting out to please God. Well, we've seen what the king was up to. 
Well, St. Daniel's brave stand, he said no, and he did it in such a way that he won the hearts of others, and the Lord honoured him. And then, lastly, we see his assessment. Verse 18. At the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Now, when I was studying for the ministry back in the 19 late 70s and early 80s, I suppose, we had just written examinations. You studied, and at the end of a course of study, you went into the room, you sat down with a pen, and the exam lasted three hours. It consisted of four written essays, each essay about 1,500, 2,000 words, handwritten from memory, no help, just a plain text Bible allowed into the room, Irish Baptist College, My last exam was Christian Ethics and Moral Philosophy, and it was Friday afternoon. And they were over, and I walked out through the door of the college, and it was so stressful and and so difficult that when I walked out into the car park, into the sunshine, I just collapsed in a heap in the car park out of sheer exhaustion. And Stanley Shaw, who was taking a mission in Donnacloney, drove me home in my car, and I went to bed. And Jeanette and him went down to visit somebody. I remember it well. Nowadays they don't do that, of course. They have assessments, don't they? Continual monitoring of progress. And that was what was happening in Daniel's day. There was this final oral assessment. And it was done before the king himself. And how will that go? Look at verse 19. The king communed with them. And among them... Among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. They were the top students in the class. They were smarter than their peer group. They were smarter than their professors. They were smarter than the leading officials in the land. The king was so oppressed, impressed with them that he appointed them right away to high office in the civil service. It was a post that Daniel would keep for 70 years. If you look at the last verse of the chapter, it said Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. 70 years later, he worked until he was 85. Marvelous. And he was a man who wouldn't bend the knee to idolatry, wouldn't compromise with the systems and the philosophies and the idolatries and the temptations that were offered to him in this ungodly world. Right, what can we learn from Daniel chapter 1, just to finish? Well, five things. Here they are. First of all, if you honour God, God will honour you. If you honour God, God will honour you. First Samuel chapter 2 and verse 30 tells us, The Lord saith, Be it far from me, for them that honour me, I will honour. Secondly, second important lesson, you're never too young to stand up for God. You're never too young to take a stand for the gospel. Thirdly, Daniel only honoured God in a small thing. 
It would have been easy enough just to say, well, sure, it's only food, and those gods are false anyway. What does it matter? Let's just eat the food and be happy, not say anything. It's only a small thing. But taking a stand in a small thing helps us to take a stand in bigger things. Because once you compromise in a small thing, it's easier to compromise when something more important comes along. So Daniel took a stand in that small issue and he laid down a marker for obedience to God for the rest of his working life. Luke chapter 19 and verse 17. Jesus said, Well done, thy good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little. Have thy authority over ten cities. The fourth thing that we learn is that even when we do take a firm stand and refuse to compromise and everyone else is against us in doing something different, when we stand up for the Lord, the Lord stands up for us. And the fifth thing is just stand up for Jesus because it may well encourage others to join you. You see, it was only Daniel who went to the eunuch and went to the chief steward. But when he took his stand, his friends stood along with him. His four men, the other three, were encouraged to stand by him. And when you're doing those things, just be politely persistent. And the Lord will honour you. So Daniel is... At the end of his course, and he's had three years university training, and he has successfully withstood all the attempts to wash his faith in God out of him, and he's come through it, and he's brighter and better than all the rest of the students, and he's been appointed as a civil service servant as a civil servant in the king's authority and now he's going to remain there for 70 years but his career might have been short lived for one day the king just on a whim decided he'd cull all his special advisors he'd get rid of the whole lot of them he'd kill them and Daniel was one of those whose names was on the list and we'll see next week, God willing, what happened and how that came to pass and what Daniel did about it. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.